Well, good morning. Everybody doing well? All right. Well, John said he was a little sore, but he's not nearly as sore as I am. You see, John actually knows how to ski, whereas I, I got on the water and, uh, well, let's just say it was slightly a different story in my book. You see, I had all these expectations the other day. We, we took a, a group of families, some of them are still over there, to, to the Livingston's Lake out there, and I had some expectations of myself on this lake. I assumed that I would be able to get up on my water skis and go with the boat and uh, take a few laps around the lake and, you know, maybe even uh, perform some jumps if I was lucky. But my expectations were royally crushed when for seven consecutive times I'd say, hit it! And Dan Livingston would hit it! And I would go, whoosh! Hit it! Whoosh! Hit it! Whoosh! Straight down into the water. Seven straight times. By that time my back was almost out and I had uh, given up. My expectations were... Uh, we're long gone there. The dreams of being a professional water skier are now gone. Now, my wife also had expectations yesterday. She uh, would freely admit, she's working the nursery here today, so you've got to watch what I say about her, but she would freely admit this, that she has very little to no athletic ability at all. Uh, she would, would argue that, that sports are really the bane of, of, of life's existence, and that any athletic activity of any kind is really not worthwhile. And so her expectations going into this uh, water ski day the other day were absolutely nil. She thought that you know, she wouldn't be able to, to do anything at all and, and she would, you know, like me, hit it, boom, straight down in the water. Well, I'm sure you can finish the story now. My wife, on her first attempt at skiing, got up for a good 10 seconds before she fell. And then she continued to get up and get up and get up. Now, she didn't have a perfect run, mind you, but nevertheless, she definitely outperformed her husband yesterday. And that was very embarrassing. And she let me know about it all the way home, too. <laughs> Expectations. How many of you have expectations about your life? Raise your hand. Do you have expectations about your life? Okay. Most of you, all of you should. We expect certain things. We expect to perform in certain ways, don't we? We expect that those things that we're skilled at, we will do well at. We'll, we naturally expect if we're more athletic, that we should probably be able to ski doesn't always happen, but we naturally expect that. We sometimes expect if we're not that athletic, then we probably won't be able to ski. And yet my wife is the contradiction of that. Expectations, friends, are a part of everyday life. And in our study in the Bible today, we're in 1 Peter chapter 5. And Peter is going to demonstrate what Jesus' expectations are for the shepherds of God's church and for the sheep, the people of that church. The title of my message today is What Does Jesus Expect from Shepherds and Sheep? What does Jesus expect from shepherds and sheep? If you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, we are in our second to last study in this letter to the church, churches of Asia Minor written by Peter. 
And we're coming to the very end here. But Peter's got something very, very poignant for all of us here today to learn from. So take a look. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're going to end at verse 5 today. Peter says this. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, We recognize today as we read Your Word that You have expectations of us. That Your Son, Jesus Christ, has expectations of those who are in His church. Father, today we look at Jesus' expectations upon elders and upon the rest of us. Father, I pray that today we would identify what are Jesus' expectations of each of us and that we would see to it that our lives meet those expectations. Father, that You would help us as elders, as the family of God here at Coast Bible Church, to meet the expectations that Your Son, Jesus Christ, has for us. In His name we pray these things. Amen. Take a look again at verse 1 of chapter 5. Peter says this, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now, based on yesterday, last Sunday's study, uh, you might think this is a major change in pace for Peter. You remember last week when we were studying uh, through the book of 1 Peter, we were recognizing that Peter was focusing on persecution. He was demonstrating to the people to whom he wrote that they would experience serious persecution, that they should not think it was strange that they were going to experience this, but rather that they were to embrace it, knowing that they were participating in part in the very sufferings of Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk about judgment at the end of chapter 4. And he says, friends, judgment is beginning at the house of God. That is to say, there are going to be times right now in the first century to whom Peter wrote and in the 21st century, Coast Bible Church here today, there are going to be times in which there is suffering, persecution, and pain for living out the Christian life. Peter says, judgment's beginning at the house of God. But that's not where it ends. He says, how much more so will that judgment be for those who disobey the Gospel of God? The end of chapter 4. He says, if we are going to experience suffering in part, how much more so are those who disobey the Lord going to receive an eternal kind of judgment? A judgment of their very souls. 
Now, Peter is spinning off this idea that judgment is beginning at the house of God. He's saying temporary suffering, persecution, temporary times of hardship and trial are beginning right now in the church. Oh, and by the way, chapter 5, because judgment is beginning here in the church, I want to say something to the elders who lead that church. I want to say something to the people who are in that church. So when Peter speaks to the elders and the people in the churches of Asia Minor in 1 Peter 5, he's not switching subjects. He's continuing the same theme that, he's, that has been developed from the last chapter. And he says, to the elders, to those who are over the house of God where judgment is beginning, to you elders, I exhort you, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now notice those three descriptions. Peter says three things about himself before he addresses the elders. He says this, I'm a fellow elder, number one. Two, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Three, I'm a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now what does Peter mean by these three self-descriptions. First, how about fellow elder? He says, I'm a fellow elder. In this, Peter is making a gesture, if you will, of camaraderie with the other elders around him. He's saying, I, like you, am a leader in the church of God. Peter is like them. He is participating with the elders in Asia Minor in the Christian life. He is their teammate, and their friend. He is a leader as they are, and in effect, he's telling them that I can identify with your joys, and I can identify with your sorrows. I know what it's like to be a leader in the church of God. How about the second one? I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, what does this mean? At face value, you and I might assume that Peter is demonstrating very clearly and plainly that he was an eyewitness to the very sufferings of Jesus Christ. It would seem to be that at face value when you look at this text. But I would caution us, actually, because I don't think that's what, he's, what he means to say there. In fact, if you recall your Bibles, your Bible stories, you will very much remember that at Jesus' arrest during the last week of his life, all of the disciples fled and abandoned him, according to Mark 14.50. Peter himself wandered from a distance, remember that? While Jesus was being taken before the magistrates. And in fact, it was Peter who denied Jesus Christ three times while Jesus was being interrogated, while Jesus was about to incur beating, scourging, suffering, and death. It seems very unlikely to me that the author of this letter, the same one who followed from a distance, who abandoned Jesus at his arrest, who denied Christ three times during his very suffering the last week, it seems very odd to me that Peter would be highlighting the fact that he was a bold eyewitness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. It seems rather odd, doesn't it, that he would draw attention to a moment in which he was most sheepish as a man in which Peter was most ineffective, if you will, in being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
may it be clear that Peter is not trying to draw attention to his literal eyewitness account of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what then does he mean by an eyewitness to the sufferings of Jesus Christ? Take a look at 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, just a few verses earlier. This is what he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but notice verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Peter's purpose in this context, friends, is not to say, I'm your fellow elder, and by the way, I saw Jesus being suffer- experiencing suffering and death. That's really out of character. Instead, he's saying, I'm your fellow elder. I'm also, just like you, partaking of the sufferings of Christ in this life, right here, right now. In effect, when Peter says, I'm an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ, what he is saying is that I'm there with you, fellow elders, in your time of trial. We, together, are partaking of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We, together, are undergoing trial today in the name of Jesus Christ. I, like you, bear witness, bear witness to the suffering of my Lord through my own suffering for Him. We, together, are witnesses of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That is what he means, friends. Peter's not highlighting his personal, literal eyewitness account. He's explaining that they are together in this participation of suffering, in part with the sufferings of Christ. And because, friends, because we are eyewitnesses of Christ's sufferings, because you and I today, as Peter was with the churches of Asia Minor, because we are participating in the sufferings of Christ when we experience trial, persecution, and hardship, we can go on to say, as Peter does, that we are a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Because if there's one theme that's overwhelmingly true in 1 Peter, it is that those who endure unjust suffering well will experience glory in the life to come. I say very clearly again, if there's one undeniable theme in 1 Peter, it is this, that those who endure unjust suffering well now experience a great measure of glory later in the kingdom of God. I'm your fellow elder, Peter says. I'm with you in the sufferings of Jesus Christ as we suffer together. And because we suffer together, we together are partakers of of the glory that will one day be revealed. Friends, this is not a reference to their salvation in terms of getting into the gates of heaven. Peter's already assumed that the churches to whom he writes are are eternally saved. He's saying we, because of this suffering, are going to go on to a great measure of honor and glory in the kingdom of God. This is more than just entering the pearly gates. This is getting the abundant life that awaits us for those who are faithful to the Lord. In all of this, Peter is making a gesture of commonality and mutuality with the elders in Asia Minor. That is to say, he is showing camaraderie with these elders. A gesture of commonality and mutuality. Let's go on to verse 2. 
In verse 2, Peter says this, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, he's still speaking to elders here. In fact, verses 1 to 4, by and large, are written exclusively toward the leaders of the churches in Asia Minor. And thus, to the leaders of the churches in Orange County. To the elders, pastors, leaders of Coast Bible Church. And he says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. That word shepherd there carries with it a range of meaning. It can mean care for. It can mean guide. It can mean rule. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. That is to say, your church. Shepherd your respective church, you elders. And he's going to lay out the do's and don'ts, if you will, for how to shepherd the church. First, he says a negative. He says, don't shepherd by compulsion. The phrase, not by compulsion, is very sophisticated in the original language. It means not by compulsion. Okay, you guys are with me? All right, good. Just making sure you're awake. It means not by compulsion. Don't do it under compulsion. Elders, leaders, pastors, teachers, you who are leading the church of God, do not lead if you have a spirit of compulsion in your leadership. Don't accept a position of leadership if you feel compelled, feel that it is a duty, a burden. Don't accept it. And if you have that attitude now in a position of leadership, remedy it quickly because God does not want you serving in that manner. He says very clearly, do not shepherd the flock of God by compulsion. Don't become an elder, don't become a leader, and do not carry out your duties with a sense of vain obligation. With a sense in which, oh, I I guess I've got to do it because no one else will. Peter says this is not the attitude to have as you shepherd the church of God. Instead, on the contrary, he says, but willingly shepherd the flock. This carries with it the aspect of volunteerism. Do it as a willing volunteer, Peter says. If you're called to lead, do it willingly, not under compulsion. Secondly, a negative, not for dishonest gain. It's safe to assume based on this uh, comment here, not for dishonest gain, it's fairly safe to assume that by and large, the churches to whom Peter wrote, their elders, at least a good portion of them, were compensated for their duties. The Scriptures attest to this multiple times. It speaks of elders who, are, who, are, uh, who labor in teaching and doctrine who are counted worthy of double honor. That is to say, they're the ones who receive compensation for their labors. It's not uncommon. It was not uncommon in the first century for elders, pastors, some teachers, to receive compensation, to receive payment for their services. And so Peter warns them. He says, don't do it for dishonest gain. Don't do it greedily. Don't do it for money. Don't lead the church so that you can make money. So that you can 
hoard the church's resources. Now, in our church, that's, uh, this is uh, less applicable. Our elders, are, the four elders in our church, uh, do not get compensated. Uh, the pastors do, but the elders do not. But in that day and age, Peter wanted to make it very clear that the elders are not to serve for dishonest gain. So here today, that application is to myself, I suppose. I am not to be serving you. I am not to be laboring and preaching and teaching and leading the church for dishonest gain, for monetary reasons. I am to watch out for the vice of greed. Instead, Peter says, do it eagerly. You might think, well, that's not really a contrast to dishonest gain, but in fact it is. It also carries with it the aspect of being willing, being a volunteer, doing it freely, Peter says. He says, don't do it for dishonest gain, but be willing to do it even freely if needed. Do it for the church. Do it for the benefit of the church. Verse 3 says, Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. Here Peter is reminiscent of what Jesus said in Matthew 20 when he said that the rulers of the Gentiles like to lord it over the people. He said, Jesus in Matthew 20 told his disciples, he says, you know how the culture around you rules. They lord it over you. That is to say, they rule with an iron fist. They grab hold of that authority and they cling to it and they love it and they covet it. And when they look upon those who are under them, they feel superior. They lord it over them. Peter says, this is not to be so among you who are elders, you who shepherd the flock of God. Instead, you're to be examples to the flock. That is to say, you are to show examples of humility, of servitude to the church to whom you are appointed. Peter envisions that the elders would be examples by their actions to the churches. Why serve in this manner? Why should elders serve in this manner? Verse 4 says this, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Who is the chief shepherd? Jesus Christ. He's referred to as the shepherd in Scripture, as the good shepherd, as the chief shepherd. He says, when Jesus Christ returns, who is the chief shepherd, under whom are the under-shepherds, the elders, when Jesus Christ returns, if you serve in this manner, elders, Peter goes on to say, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Rather than seeking dishonest gain, rather than doing it for earthly, monetary greed, Peter says, instead, await an eternal, imperishable inheritance. A crown of glory, if you will. You will be compensated for your efforts, Peter says. But look for that better and greater and eternal kind of compensation. What is this crown of glory? Let's, let's zero in on that, that phrase, crown of glory. What does it mean that they're going to receive a crown of glory? Now, I'm sure many of you have, uh, on some level, been exposed to kind of a, a theology of crowns, if you will. Uh, in Scripture, there are a number of crowns that are mentioned in the, in the Bible, uh, of which various people who accomplish certain things in their life before the Lord receive on the last day when the Lord Jesus Christ judges them. 
Now, in some cases, these crowns are referred to in Scripture are, are real crowns, so it seems. That they are real, literal crowns. We know from Revelation chapter 4 that the Apostle John saw 24 elders around the throne of God, and each of these elders were wearing gold crowns, which they would soon cast at the feet of the Lord. There's also a, an allusion in James 1.12 to a crown of life, which seems, based on James's, uh, based on James's use of the term, seems to be a literal crown that his audience was awaiting. Paul also speaks of a crown of righteousness that he very much anticipated to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He literally said that the Lord would give it to him on the last day in 2 Timothy 4.8. There are real crowns in Scripture, yet there are also metaphorical crowns mentioned in Scripture. You might recall some of these crowns. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, Peter says this, Therefore, Excuse me, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says this, For what is our hope our, or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. You know, uh, our elder, our chairman... Today, Glenn Eichler, uh, right before his prayer, mentioned that he was so pleased to see Deborah serving the Lord, a woman whom he has watched from her childhood. And so also Tom. He said he was pleased that he's seen Tom grow and mature in the Lord, a boy that he watched from three years old to now a grown man. And Glenn, in effect, was saying what? These children, who are now adults, are my crown. They, in effect, are the adornment upon my head, upon the head of this church, upon the leadership of this church that demonstrates that we are taking the, the people of this church and we are moving them forward in maturity in the Lord. What Glenn was saying today before his prayer was no different than what Paul is saying about the people to whom he ministers to. He says, you are my crown. Your life of faith, your perseverance in the Lord, your love, the mercy that you exude, the ministries which you are a part of today are like a crown upon my head, Paul says. So, so we see here, crowns, can be both real in Scripture and can be metaphorical in Scripture. The question is, what crown is in view in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4? Well, one thing is very clear. When the Scriptures refer to a crown of glory, literally, a crown of glory, it is always in reference to a metaphorical crown. There are four passages other than 1 Peter 5 that refer to a crown of glory. They are on the screen behind you. It is interesting to note, friends, that the book of Proverbs and the book of Isaiah, the two books which contain the four other references to a crown of glory, are also the two Old Testament books that Peter cites most often. That is to say, Peter is very much fond of these Old Testament writings from Solomon and from Isaiah. 
And he very often quotes them in his epistle, in his letter. He very often refers to them. He very often goes to them and says, Wow, I love what I've read here, and I'm going to recapitulate this for my audience in the first century. And so it is not without happenstance. It is not without... uh, We should not be surprised that when Peter cites the term crown of glory, we should be looking where he got it from. The books of Proverbs and Isaiah. And how were they interpreted in those books? They were interpreted metaphorically. In the first reference, Proverbs 4, 9, wisdom is referred to as a crown of glory. In the second reference, Proverbs 16, uh, 31, the gray hair upon a man's head is referred to as a crown of glory. It demonstrates his age and his maturity. In Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 5, the Lord Himself is referred to as a crown of glory. And in the last reference, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 3, the people of Israel, in particular in the city of Jerusalem, are referred to as a crown of glory. Friends, what does this lead us to interpret? 1 Peter 5, 4. From my vantage point, we stand on very firm ground to assume that Peter here is referring to a metaphorical crown. A metaphorical crown of glory. And what does that mean? What does it mean that the elders who rule well will receive a metaphorical crown of glory? It means this, that is to say, if the elders of Asia Minor shepherd their respective congregations willingly, eagerly, and demonstrate examples of humility and service, they will effectively be crowned with glory in the life to come. Corresponding to the Apostle Paul, who likened the Christian churches he helped mature to a crown upon his head, corresponding to that kind of teaching, so also Peter desperately desired the elders of the churches of Asia Minor to view their flock as their crown. Elders, devote your very lives to the people of this church. Let your leadership contribute to their growth and maturity Let the people's conformity to Christ be your crown. And in so doing, you will receive yet another crown from the Lord on that day. The Lord will crown you with a measure of glory and honor that is in proportion to the manner in which you built up the body of Coast Bible Church. The people are your crown. And you will receive a measure, a great measure of glory in proportion to the crown that you create here on this earth. The crown of the people of Coast Bible Church. Verse 5. Likewise, likewise, in like manner, Peter says, you who are younger, that is to say, actually, all of you who are not those who are in the leadership position of the church, the rest of you, Peter says, submit yourselves to your elders. For the rest of us, this is Peter's command. Submit yourselves to your elders. It's a very simple command. Put yourself in subjection to the elders of your local church. Follow their lead. Come under their leadership and wisdom. Recognize that their lives are being especially watched by the Lord. God expects them to assist you in maturing in Jesus Christ. 
You know, at Coast, we have, uh, we have elders. We have uh, four elders. Glenn, Lloyd, uh, David Bennett in the back, and Jack is uh, teaching children's Sunday school today. Children's Junior Church for the first time. Good job, Monica. At Coast, uh, we have elders. Yet we are ultimately a, uh, by government, if you will, we are a congregation-run church. That is to say, the people of this church uh, vote on some of the larger decisions, like approving the annual budget, uh, hiring a new full-time pastor, and things like this. Um, in fact, uh, they also, you, you know, in a congregation-run church, one of the uh, uh, one of the uh, detriments that I think we will all willingly agree is that sometimes we all have a little bit of, uh, well, I might say too much input on things. Take a look at this comic here behind me. It says, we cannot change the church light bulb. Our founders put it in there. New light bulbs may be dangerous. It's not in the budget. You know, sometimes in a congregation-run church, you know, you can come up with issues like this, can't you? How many of you have been a part of, like, selecting the church carpet or, or you know, changing the light bulbs and having a dispute about that in your churches? Only a few of you. Okay, good. Well, good. We're, at Coast, we haven't had any of these disputes, I don't think. No, no light bulb changing disputes. But nevertheless, in a congregation-run church, uh, there, there, there can be some obstacles to jump over, if you will. It, it helps in some ways. In a congregation-run church, it elicits greater participation among the membership. The people seem to be very intimately involved in the life of the church. They vote. They're very concerned about what goes on in the church. Uh, secondly, there's a system of checks and balances. No one pastor or group of elders uh, rules exclusively. So we, we shy away, if you will, from, uh, from, uh, uh, from totalitarianism, if you will, in the church. There's good systems of checks and balances in a congregation-run system. Yet I think if we're uh, prudent, we would also recognize some deficiencies in the congregation-run system. Oftentimes in a congregation-run system, the people, the people can lose sight of God's purpose in placing elders in the local church. Elders are meant to lead and guide, according to 1 Peter chapter 5. And so long as their lives and their vision and their plans for the church remain in line with the teachings of Scripture, it is incumbent upon the flock to follow the shepherds. So when they offer, when the elders offer you and I spiritual counsel or advice, we're to pay heed to it. When they caution us, we're to listen to what they have to say. And for goodness sake, when they make a joke, we're to laugh at whatever they say. Because I've heard some doozies coming out of the, the, the mouths of these four men. They've got some good jokes. He says, Peter says, hey, be submissive to your elders. Regardless of the mode of church government that you have, congregation run, elder run, pastor run, elders are meant to lead the church. They're the ones, along with the pastor, who will stand before the Lord one day. And the Lord will say, what did you do with my church? How did you lead it? Were they a crown upon your head? I urge Coast Bible Church today, give good respect to these four men who serve this church. They're doing it well. Uh, I, am, I am very pleased to be able to participate with these four men. They're godly men. 
they have the best interests of this church in mind. I know that they are deeply looking forward to our future as a church. I think we are all very much excited about what lies ahead for this church. And I urge each of us to show them respect, give them the honor that they deserve, and let them lead Coast Bible Church. Peter goes on to say this at the, in the middle of verse 5. He says, Yes, and all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. While the church is to submit to the elders, so also Peter goes on to say that the entire body of Christ is to live in submission to one another. The overarching theme here is humility. All those in the church are to be clothed with humility and defer to one another as to the Lord. We're to treat others as better than ourselves. And friends, what Peter says at the start of verse 5 is in no way contradicted by the second phrase in verse 5. When he says, submit to your elders, and then he goes on to say, everyone be submissive to one another, Peter's not contradicting what he just said. In fact, he's emphasizing it all the more. He's saying, let all of us be in a spirit of submission, of deference to one another in fear of the Lord. Let all of us show a spirit of love toward one another. Treat others as better than ourselves. Show respect to those who are elders and who are to lead the church. But let all of us mutually submit to one another. Let us be clothed with humility. Why? Peter says, For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now this is a loose quotation of Proverbs 3.34, which if you uh, really wanted to speculate, uh, is not very far from the crown of glory in chapter 4, verse 9 of Proverbs. Uh, I think it's safe to speculate that Peter had a scroll with him in Proverbs within which he was doing his devotions. And he came across chapter 3, verse 34 of Proverbs, if you will. And he says, wow, what a beautiful passage. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want to comment on that passage. And then just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 9, Peter comes across another statement about a crown of glory. He says, wow, I want to comment on this crown of glory. You see, friends, Scripture, the cohesion of Scripture is not happenstance. It's not coincidence. Peter, like you and I, was doing his devotions, if you will, in the Word of God. And by the Spirit of God, he was being impressed to impart wisdom to the churches in Asia Minor. And so he ends with this, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And friends, I'm not going to comment on this today. And the reason why I cannot comment on this is because this very, this very quotation of Proverbs 3.34, Peter himself is going to comment on as he finishes his epistle. Verses 6-10 through 10 are a commentary on this quotation. So we will leave this study here today in a spirit of anticipation of what Peter will have to say about this very statement, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Friends, this is the last statement that Peter wishes to impart. This is the last token of wisdom that he wishes to impart to you in his letter. So let's move on to application. As we finish, take a look at the application here. First to the elders. Elders, leaders of this church, shepherd Coast Bible Church as willing servants. This church is your crown. This church is your crown. Lead by an example of humility and Jesus will give you glory when He returns.
Coast Bible Church, submit to the elders. Respect them and follow their example as they follow Christ. And to all of us, mutually submit to one another in love. Consider everyone as better than yourselves. Friends, these are very, very simple lessons that Peter wishes to impart to us. But remember the context in which he wants to impart it. He says, judgments beginning at the house of God. Times of trial, times of suffering, times of persecution are starting now. And I want you to live in an orderly manner. So submit to your elders. Let them lead. Let them make you into a crown for the Lord Jesus Christ upon the last day. That all of us might receive a measure of glory for serving and for leading and for contributing to this church as we ought to do so. Let us all show mutual submission to one another as we see the day approaching. Friends, these are good lessons to learn. Simple lessons that will help our church move forward in the years to come. I pray that we would pay, pay good heed to this teaching today. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, I, I thank You for just the beauty and simplicity of Your Word. Father, today You've given us teaching that is straightforward. You've given us teaching that is chewable and understandable that we can apply directly to our lives today. I pray for our elders today, Lord. They have a great responsibility upon their shoulders. You've asked them and you've asked me, Father, to lead this church. I pray, Lord, that we would rely upon your Spirit to do so. That we would shepherd the flock of God, not with any attitude of compulsion, or seeking dishonest gain, but that we would do it willingly, readily, eagerly for You. That we would be examples to this flock. That our lives would be worthy of imitation. And Father, I pray for the people of this church. I pray that they would show respect and deference to their elders. I pray, Lord, that there would be a spirit of, of, of teamwork at Coast Bible Church that we would come under the leadership of the elders as they sit under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we together as a church, mutually submitting to one another, would grow up into the fullness of Jesus Christ that you wish for us today. Father, guide this church. Lead it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.